Hello and a warm welcome to this edition of the Script Podcast, where we are going to touch on some hot topics related to COVID-19 vaccines. I am Vibha Ravi, sub-editor with Script and Pink Sheet, and joining me today is Mr. Davinder Gill, a vaccines expert whose career has spanned stints as CEO at Hilleman Laboratories, a joint venture between Merck and Wellcome Trust, as well as Vice President of Biotherapeutics at Pfizer, apart from others. Welcome, Mr. Gill. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak to you. And in the interest of time, let's get to the state of play around COVID-19 vaccines right away. Now, we've seen countries like Canada, Italy and South Korea using different COVID-19 vaccines for the first and second shots. This heterologous boosting has not just been a strategy to increase immune response, especially against new variants, but also counter to some serious, although rare or very rare side effects, ranging from uh, blood clotting to GBS. However, there is an important aspect of heterologous boosting that needs to be addressed. Do you think heterologous boosting complicates the contours of fixing responsibility for side effects? And uh, how will regulators be able to determine which vaccine has been a cause? For sure, it, it creates a complication because as you can rightly imagine that with heterologous boosting, you're actually giving two different vaccines during the course of the vaccination. So it is going to be difficult should there be any complications, did they arise from the first dose or the second dose? And with vaccines, we know that some of these complications uh, can arise over a period of time, although the vast majority of issues uh, or side effects actually come uh, immediately after vaccination. So uh, for sure, this complexity will exist. And I think that the only real way to address this is by doing controlled studies in which each component of the heterologous boosting is studied in the appropriate population and also it's monitored over a period of time. So without those studies, uh, I think it's going to be a little bit complicated. And the only way to really address this is to ensure that there are good, well-controlled clinical trials to address the safety of both components of the vaccine. Right. Um, so how will the long-term effect of vaccines or uh, phase four studies be conducted? if uh, heterologous vaccination is resorted to? And what would be an ideal follow-up time for such studies? My hope is that uh, as the supply of vaccines improves, that the need for heterologous boosting will diminish. Uh, let's remember that the reason why we're doing heterologous boosting is because there's a lot of people that need to be fully vaccinated and there's not enough vaccine. So one can imagine that over time, this need will actually diminish, maybe not completely go away, but will reduce. So let's let's understand that. Now, in terms of the phase four aspect, uh, for most vaccine studies, a 12-month or an 18-month follow-up is not uncommon. And I would imagine that in the four, phase four follow-up, a similar type of longitudinal study will be required in order to understand what are the long-term effects of heterologous boosting. So without that follow-up, it's going to be quite difficult. And let's also remember that even without uh, heterologous boosting, so what we call homologous uh, prime and boost vaccination with two-dose regimen, these one-year 
to 18-month follow-up in some cases, even two years or three years, is not uncommon. So I don't think that would be any different for heterologous boosting. Right, right. Um, how do you think the Indian regulators should go about deciding on heterologous boosting, especially, you know, since it already has six COVID-19 vaccines options and more are on the way? So it definitely complicates the landscape, as you can imagine that you have uh, multiple different vaccines. They are derived from different platforms. The country is still in the grips of a pandemic. So to conduct these various permutations, combinations with different vaccines in terms of heterologous boosting can become quite daunting. I think one pragmatic approach that the regulator can take, and in some ways, I think this is also the responsibility of the sponsors, the vaccine manufacturers, is to take the two most uh, prominent vaccines, let's say Covishield and Covaxin, and I know some limited studies have been done, but if the vast majority of people are being vaccinated by these two vaccines, so at a minimum, I would say that a good, well-controlled clinical study with a good follow-up for these two vaccines would be uh, minimum. And beyond that, I think the regulator can look at what's the third vaccine that's likely to be available in, in sufficient uh, quantities or doses. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not going to be possible to take all six vaccines and study the various permutations combinations. That's a little bit too daunting, but certainly it can be done with the two prominent, the dominant vaccines, uh, and perhaps a third vaccine can be added. In the end, I feel that a limited amount of high quality clinical trial data will be much better for the regulator and for the Indian people versus small, uh, poorly controlled studies or poorly executed clinical studies with these various uh, six or seven however many vaccines. So small amounts of high quality data is always going to be better than large amounts of poor quality data. And I think that's what the regulator should shoot for. Yeah, I agree. Um, now coming to the, you know, uh, another aspect that uh, in the interest of its citizens, the Indian government is considering granting indemnity, you know, so that uh, uh, more vaccines are available, uh, like from manufacturers like Pfizer, Moderna and J&J. So is this kind of counterintuitive to the interest and would it raise questions of compromising on resources available to those who take the vaccine? I would say that in a normal situation where, let's say, you have a vaccine manufacturer come in and would like to introduce their vaccine in a particular country, let us take the example of the dengue vaccine that Sanofi introduced several years ago, and they went into countries like Philippines and so on and so forth. I think granting indemnity to somebody like Sanofi for dengue vaccine, when in fact there wasn't a countrywide or a regional pandemic of dengue, would have been perhaps a little bit counterproductive. I think in the case of COVID-19, the landscape is completely different. We are in the grips of a global pandemic. Lots of people are dying and there's a lot of devastation, not just for health and, and infrastructure, uh, but also in terms of the economy, social upheaval and so on and so forth. So I think in this case, uh, it is appropriate for a government to consider giving indemnity because the benefit of that is that lots of people can be vaccinated. Let's also remember that with certainly COVID vaccines that have been given in large numbers, so whether they are the RNA vaccines or whether they are the uh, adenovirus-based vaccines or inactivated vaccines, we now have large amounts of data from around the world. So to the extent that we have seen various side effects, which you touched upon earlier in the, in the podcast, such as blood clotting or other side effects, 
But mostly these vaccines have been safe. I think that also cements the case for indemnity because we're not looking at any severe uh, side effects and deaths and so on and so forth. So in a way, what I'm trying to say is that, that the current crisis is unusual. And I think the nature of the crisis perhaps supports or even warrants the consideration of indemnity to some of these manufacturers, coupled with the fact that so far the safety profile has generally been clean. Right. Okay, so that's uh, reassuring. Um, now, while developing countries are approving booster doses, India is expected to resume vaccine exports in October. Uh, we heard uh, recently from US President Joe Biden that India is on track to produce 1 billion doses for supplying the Quad Alliance. Do you think the timing is right to resume exports or we should have waited a bit longer? I think this is a difficult question. Um, I think if the decision were up to me, I would ensure that my people, my citizens are adequately vaccinated before I would consider exports. If you look at most of the developed countries like the US, the UK and other countries that are now boosting their population, that's what they did. You know, They got up to about 60, 70 percent fully vaccinated uh, rates, and only then they either considered boosters or donating vaccines. I don't see why India should follow uh, a different path. So I think the fact that we are now at 80 crores, about 800 million people that have at least received one dose in India, that's extremely uh, laudable. I think it's a, an incredible milestone that the country has achieved. I really think that the country needs to push along those lines before the question of significant exports come in. Now, obviously, if there are allies or countries that are going through some very difficult uh, circumstances and the export of small quantities of doses, let's say 5 million doses or 10 million doses, could help alleviate the crisis in those countries, uh, that might be a different situation. But I think that whole-scale export of the range of hundreds of millions of doses or even a billion doses in my opinion, should be held back a little bit until the vaccination rate uh, in the country has uh, improved and perhaps then it can be picked up. Mm. Yeah. Um, so on a different note now, Serum Institute and Biocon Biologics have uh, recently announced a strategic partnership for vaccines uh, with a decision also to make investments or acquisitions in companies along the supply chain. So do you think this combine has the potential to change the landscape of the vaccine industry, not just in India, but globally? Yes, uh, so I agree that this is a landmark agreement between you know, what are essentially two giants within the country, Biocon uh, in the biotech and Serum Institute in the vaccines area. I think that this alliance could go in either direction and time will tell. One direction that it could go into is that the nature of this alliance could spur perhaps more investment, more interest in uh, private funding, government funding in these types of uh, R&D endeavors, manufacturing endeavors in the range of biotech products and vaccines. It could go in that direction, uh, which would obviously be very healthy and it would be very good for everyone. But the other direction that it could go into, and this is the part that actually worries me a little bit, is that these are two giants. And so therefore, there is the risk of monopoly. Uh, there is the risk that uh, a lot of the small R&D enterprises, a lot of the small companies, perhaps a lot of the small uh, startups where perhaps innovation is starting to gather steam, 
um, might not get a chance to see success because you have these two giants that are actually somehow uh, disproportionately using up resources or are somehow uh, trying to suppress competition. And that would not be a healthy outcome. So I think that uh, I'm an optimist. I think that this uh, handshake between the two countries, uh, between the two companies rather, uh, would lead to a spur in, in investment in this area, which is much needed. Um, but there is a part of me that worries that this could also go perhaps in the other direction where it might be seen or end up in a monopoly and it might not uh, benefit, especially small startups, small innovation and R&D centers around the country. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective, actually. Um, now, with COVID-19 moving towards becoming endemic, what are the challenges you foresee for innovators, health professionals and regulators? Well, the challenges lay in, 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 in numerous fronts. I think that, uh, I mean, first and foremost, I think we have to ensure that with this disease, this with this virus becoming endemic, how do we ensure that we maintain a certain threshold level of vaccination, whether that's 70% or 80% of the population? As you're witnessing, certainly in a lot of the developed countries and perhaps not so much in developing countries, that there's a significant vaccine hesitancy. A chunk of the population does not want the vaccination at all. So one challenge for us is going to be, as this virus remains endemic, how do we maintain our vaccination rates at that high 70, 70 plus range? And this might include boosters. This might also include new variants, uh, new versions of the vaccines that cover variants that might come up uh, into the future. Um, it also uh, creates a challenge, specifically when we look at vulnerable populations, small children, immunocompromised people, uh, people with uh, chronic uh, diseases like diabetes and so on and so forth. And to ensure that those uh, high-risk populations are constantly monitored in terms of the effectiveness of the vaccine, because we're still not sure how well the vaccines work uh, in those populations. And it's one of the reasons why boosters have been now approved in certain countries for those high-risk groups. So that's another challenge. Um, and I think the third challenge is, again, that in the future, if we are to um, experience uh, more waves, uh, certain certain spikes, what lessons have we learned? Um, because for every country, there has been this balance between protecting lives versus protecting the livelihoods of, of people, especially people that are at the uh, lower bracket of the socioeconomic ladder. And I think that that's going to be a challenge uh, really for governments, for uh, economic advisors, financial planners, and so on. Uh, this is going to be important because we cannot make the mistakes that we've made in the past. Uh, both of these things are important. Lives and livelihoods are important, but in some ways, perhaps lives are more important. How do we handle this in the future remains to be seen. But this is also an important challenge that uh, will have to be kept in mind as we deal with the pandemic. Right. So that certainly leaves us with uh, something to think about. And uh, it also bring, brings us to the end of today's discussion. Thank you, Mr. Gill. It's, as always, it has been a stimulating conversation. Thank you for having me. And uh, I would just like to tell our listeners that we at Pharma Intelligence have an eye on various aspects around COVID-19, apart, of course, from other subjects in the pharma universe. 
and you can register on our sites whether it's Crip or Pink Sheet for a look at some such interesting articles. I hope you enjoyed this edition and you'll check back for other insightful podcasts from our team. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.